Okay, good evening everybody. I hope you guys can hear me. I think, uh, it's, confirm you guys can hear me there in Discord as well. I'm pretty sure I'm on the go and streaming there. That looks like we're all, we're all set there. Okay, excellent. Very good. So, thanks for joining me tonight. Sorry, starting up a little late than usual. Uh, uh, as always, to the family bedtime issues, sometimes have to negotiate a little bit there. Uh, but we got it all set. I've one. Uh, I have a, a sick kid, not grievously sick, but uh, sick enough to need a little extra uh, uh, tucking in here today. Um, okay, so let's see. So can you guys hear me? In Discord, am I am I coming through? Okay, it looks like I'm coming through. Uh, I think so. Um, oh wait, hang on. So no, you're not hearing me. All right, hang on, just a second. Okay, I just gotta sort this out here. Um, wait, you are? Okay, no, no. Some of you are saying you can't hear. Half of you are and half of you are not. I'm not sure what to do about that. Um, okay. Are you hearing me? Any Are those of you... Okay, you're hearing me on Twitch. Okay. But you're not hearing me on Discord. Weird. Sorry, I apologize for the short delay here while I'm working out the technical difficulties here. So on Twitch, it's good. Um, <laughs> yes, whale off exactly. Whale off is suggesting that uh, 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 that I like half of you half as much as. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. So you're still you're still not hearing anything. Uh, I think I'm here, and I seem to be unmuted, and it's more or less connected to my microphone. No. That's strange. I have no explanation for this at all. Yeah, no, Trish, I didn't hear you talking either. Um, <laughs> I have no idea what the issue is here. Um, it's especially... There we go. It's especially... I just went out and came back in again. Uh... It's especially strange because uh, we were just talking before we switched rooms there with no problems. So you're still not hearing me now? <laughs> hmm. That's kind of strange. It seems to be registering me. I have no explanation for this. Is it Trish's or something in the settings of the room, maybe? I wonder. Something about the voice channel itself? Well. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Apologies. Um, yeah. Um... Uh, 
Sorry, it's, I'm ju- I'm trying to figure it out because it's nice to nice to get that sorted because um, uh, it's it makes it easier to be able to, to be able to respond with people. Um, huh. Well, I'm glad I'm coming through on Twitch anyway. Um, yeah, I did. Yeah, so this okay. one, this one's working. Right. Well, I can everybody on yeah. I can everybody on general. Should we just have people move over to general? I guess. <laughs> I think I think they're doing that automatically. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, okay. We're just abandoning the lower hall. So yeah. Yeah, we're just abandoning the. Okay. Right now, what they need to do is mute themselves. Oh, they're themselves. not auto muted on this channel. Yeah, that's a no, downside. They're not auto muted on this channel. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll have to see what we can do there. And then I guess Trish will just have to monitor to make sure, because you can mute people, right? If uh, somebody forgets. Okay. All right. Okay. Sorry. Again, my apologies. Some kind of strange glitch here this evening. All right. Let's get going. So tonight we are going to start chapter four. That's right. We continue our breakneck uh, 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 dash through the Lord of the Rings entering recklessly chapter four here in week 16 or 15, 15, I think it's 15. Anyway, whatever, uh, 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 some significant period of time after it's middle of April and we, uh, uh, we're finally up to chapter four. So that's great. So, uh, however, I'm going to do a dangerous thing this evening to begin. And as I have to admit, I'm going to go back a little bit because, uh, I got, I got several really good questions. So we have to go back to Gildor uh, uh, for a little bit there to make sure uh, that we've finished some things up. So let me, uh, let me start that. So tonight, uh, tonight's class is called You Cannot Forever Fence It Out. Of course, I'm quoting Gildor there talking about the wide world that the hobbits can't forever fence out. Um, and that's what I want to be looking at tonight. I want to be looking at uh, the, the beginning of their travels. In chapter four, the morning after uh, the uh, the meeting with the elves, and of course, this is when they confront the black riders in a new way, right? They the black riders have been a threat, right? They've been chased by black riders for the you know the couple days before, um, but things are kind of on a different footing now. And of course, I am looking forward to spending some time on the super important conversation between Sam and Frodo the morning after uh, their first meeting with the elves. Um, There are those two moments, uh, two moments in the beginning of chapter four here, uh, you know, in this, in the stretch that I'm hoping to cover tonight, um, uh, which is like three whole pages or something like that. But anyway, um, this, there are two different scenes, two different moments uh, in these first couple pages of chapter four, which get referred back to multiple times over the course of the Lord of the Rings. Um, they really kind of loom large in memory as we uh, as we move forward. So uh, those are those are certainly important to uh, to keep in mind. But as I say, first we have to go back because you guys are asking some really good questions, and I want to I want to touch on those. So I have three questions, one of which involves me in some dangerous backtracking, uh, but that's okay. We'll 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 get through it here. So Tungo asks a great question. It says when the elves and the hobbits sit down to eat, they say, "This is poor fare, for we are lodging in the green wood far from our halls. If you are ever a guest at our home, we will treat you better." It doesn't seem to add up that their home is Rivendell, because earlier Gildor says some of our kinsfolk dwell still in peace in Rivendell. Therefore, we have our kinsfolk, 
not the group itself. Uh, T. Thurston suggested they could be from the Tower Hills, which I think is a good guess. Apparently, they still have a home somewhere, even though they are tarrying here a while ere we return over the Great Sea. Maybe they are out for one last journey east from the Tower Hills before turning back west? Possibly. Um, first of all, that, uh, uh, Tungle, that's great reading, right? That's, that's, that's an excellent set of observations. You're absolutely right. Uh, the internal evidence does suggest there that these elves don't actually live at Rivendell. They're obviously familiar with Rivendell. Um, but they, uh, they, they don't, they, they clearly don't consider Rivendell their home, um, uh, because yes, some of our kinsfolk still dwell in peace in Rivendell, which does imply that they do not dwell at Rivendell. So where do they dwell now? Of course, we don't know, right? We don't really know if, um, uh, if, if that's what's happening or not, right? You know, uh, 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 we don't know where they're, where exactly they live. I agree that T. Thurston's guess of, you know, sort of the Linden area, you know, out to the west towards the coast is a good guess, if only because there are only a few places in Middle-earth that we know for a fact that elves live, and even fewer where we know for a fact that high elves, that Noldor, live. And one of those is Linden, of course. That was where Gilgalad reigned for so many years uh, before the Battle of the Last Alliance, and there are still some out there. Uh, and, of course, there are some in Rivendell, and there's one in Lothlorien. Um, <clears throat> but other than that, there aren't that, there aren't that many of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the High Elves still left. So, I, I, again, I, I think it's a fine guess. Of course, we don't, we don't really have any idea. But it is important, it, it is interesting to notice that they, they do talk about their halls, right? Now, one caution, Tungo, I would give in response to your question. Um, I... It says they still have a home, even though they are tarrying here a while ere we return over the Great Sea. Um, that too is good reading, but I would be I would I would caution about your interpretation of the word tarrying. Right, tarrying makes it sound like um, tarrying makes it sound like they're just kind of hanging out for a little bit, right? Like we're just camping, right? We don't have a we don't have a firmly established dwelling. We're just we're just kind of lingering for a little bit. Um, I say to be careful because, of course, you have to remember this is an elvish perspective. And elves kind of think differently about this, right? They may well have been, like, when they say we're tarrying here a while, that may be since the Battle of the Last Alliance, right? So, like, 3,000 years have passed and they're still saying we're just tarrying here a while. Nothing could be more likely. I mean, we know for a fact that Gildor has been here since before the Battle of the Last Alliance. Indeed, he's been living here in Middle-earth for, what, like 6,000 years since the, uh, uh, since the end of the, of the Great War, right? Since the end of, of uh, the War of Wrath and the end of the First Age. Um, and, and, and that's what he means. Like, so when, when, when you talk about elves tarrying in Middle-earth, before they returned to Toleresia, that's because all the elves were invited to return to Toleresia after the War of Wrath at the end of the First Age. Um, and so there are some who chose not to go, to kind of tarry in Middle-earth for a while, namely 6,000 years, right? So, so you know, don't take them... Well, it's not that you can't take them literally, it's just that you can't translate their time words in human or hobbit scope, right? Uh, so... We're but tarrying here a while, certainly in this case, can mean we have, you know, halls of stone that we built and have been living in for millennia, right, um, while we tarry here in Middle-earth. Um, so are they about to go? Like, are they really—I mean, they, they, it's, they make it sound like they're about to return, right? But again, 
Gildor could have said this 4,000 years ago, and it would have been just as true then as it is today. So, you know, again, that's just a really important uh, important thing to um, uh, to keep in mind. Exactly, as a couple of people are saying, as Guibrella says, what, 6,000 years to an elf? Yeah, exactly. Not not a, uh, not a hugely long period of time, certainly. Um, and, um, yeah, so um, the... the um, yeah, as Wayloff points out, they might not be waiting for any particular moment. You know, they're just not ready to go yet. Yeah, we don't we don't know their timetable and what exactly is triggering it. Is there a thing that they're waiting for? Right? Um, you know, is there is there not? Is there you know? Is it just like yeah, some kind of preparedness? Right? That is opaque to mortals. No idea. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, Tungle, thanks for this. I've always associated them with Rivendell, and it's clear, again, that they have links to Rivendell. Um, but of course, you're absolutely right that they don't live there, um, uh, and I don't know where they live. But again, it's sort of fun thinking back to the uh, the field trip that we went on a week before last and thinking about Gildor uh, up in uh, up in the, the North Downs uh uh, in the Lotro game, um, you know, th- that they they give them places to go, right? And we see them, we see the sort of the scope of their travels and um, and other places where uh, where other Noldor have lived that they've, you know, that they're going to visit other places where others of the, the wandering companies are tarrying. You know, like those cities of stone that they built thousands of years ago, because they're wandering still in Middle-earth and, and tarrying here for a while when they, you know, built those, um, uh, when, they, <laughs> when they built those huge stone buildings. Um, anyway, okay. But here's me, being efficient with my questions. Um, Nathalia, great question. It occurred to me while listening to this part of last week's class that Gildor might have been exactly right about keeping the details of the Ringwraiths a secret. I remember feeling like Frodo every time I read the passage. Gildor's hints and warnings are worse than any knowledge could be. But when Frodo is attacked at the camp near Weathertop and survives for 17 days with the knife point working its way in, in right working its way into his chest cavity, uh, we find out that maybe Gildor was right to hold back. If Frodo knew from the beginning, oh yeah, the Black Riders are the most powerful of Sauron's servants, they have the power to enslave you and bring you directly to him if they stab you with their magic knives, you're pretty much done for, etc., uh, etc. Et Frodo might never have stood up to them at Weathertop or at the Ford. And Frodo says himself if he'd known about the knife, he would have been too terrified to move, and they might not have been able to get him to Rivendell in time. Nathalio, that's, that, that's really a wonderful point. And I, I certainly share that perspective. Um, my sympathy has always been very strongly with Frodo in that scene. And and, uh, and when Frodo says, I can't imagine what information could be worse than your hints and warnings, it's hard not to see his point of view, right? It's hard not to, um, uh, to, 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 to side with him there, right? Um, but I agree with you. I think that that is correct. Um, and of course, Mathalio, you're, you know, you're referring ahead to things which we're not going to talk about for months. Um, but but I but I I agree with you. Remember how important is Frodo's will to resist, right? That's what saves him on Weathertop. The fact that he is actually charging, right? He would have had he been had he remained frozen in place in terror as the the Nazgul came qu- towards him. He would have been stabbed in the heart and he would have been wraithified immediately. Um, but instead, he charges forward and lunges at the guy, which he was not expecting, and that's why his strike misses, right? 
Similarly, just think of the way that his will, his will is involved in resisting the knife, resisting the effect of the wound uh, as it slowly overcomes him. Gandalf emphasizes that pretty clearly, right? That he, that fr- he is impressed that, that um, what Frodo did is an accomplishment, right? An accomplishment of strength, an accomplishment of will. Could he have mustered that will? Right? Would his spirit have been overcome had he known that these were the Nazgul, that these were the Ringwraiths? Right? I, I, you know, I'm not sure. He, as you say, Mathalio, he doubts that, um, and I think that's, um, I think that's really interesting. I think that's really important. Um, so, anyway, so I just, I, I thought that was a great observation, Mathalio, and I'm sure that many other people were thinking the same thing um, in uh, in that in that moment. Okay, number three. Uh, Gildor knows that these three hobbits, babes in the wood, are being pursued by nine 5,000-year-old mummy warlocks. By the way, that's my, my favorite description of Nazgul uh, 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 recently. He knows that Gandalf is involved with their purpose, so it must be rather important. And by his own admission, Gildor and company are merely tarrying. So why doesn't he whisk them away to safety? Why doesn't he lend them an escort to hasten them to Rivendell? I, I mean, there, it is a kind of a good question, right? Like, does he have something better to do? <laughs> right? What's up with that? I wonder if the fate of Middle-earth and its inhabitants are of decreasing concern and he's reluctant to be burdened. Um, I, uh, um, I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, uh, but, but let's stop and think this through for a second. So, Doc Singles, uh, this is a great question. Um, and, uh, Okay. This, I think, is a really important question. Um, Not only because it gets at what I think is a really important issue, or rather, a really important challenge to understanding this scene, right? Um, But I think it's a a kind of a really big picture important concern. Um, I mean, it's a type of question that a lot of people ask at a lot of different points. And so, therefore, I want to take a couple minutes to see if we can work our way through this and try to understand what's going on here. Because there is one conceivable answer to this question that I'm prepared to reject. And that is that this is just a plot hole that Tolkien didn't think of. And the reason... I say that. It's not that I think that Tolkien is infallible or anything like that. He makes mistakes, I think. But I, I'm very disinclined to believe that this is one of them. And the primary reason is that this scene and most of that dialogue between Frodo and Gildor is in the very first draft of the Fellowship of the Ring when it gets to this point. It's a feature, this conversation is a feature of the very first draft. And the issue is, is there from the beginning and he revised it and wrote, he revised this passage carefully like six times um and Tolkien is a really really good reader of his own text it's one of the things it's the thing that I love most about Tolkien's letters um is not when he gives like additional information that's always fun right it's always fun when um uh when we see him kind of filling in background information because someone is asked a question that's not answered in the books, right? And he, he, he gets into, like, making stuff up mode, right? And he begins to fill in this backstory. That, I mean, that's obviously, that's awesome, right? But 
for me, even more fun is when he starts quoting the book. Right when he starts actually doing a reading of his own text and 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 he's doing direct quotations and not saying here's what I was thinking right here's what my plan is right he's not he's not um you know he's not um okay I'm gonna make the invidious comparison because. It's not like what J.K. Rowling does, right? You ask J.K. Rowling about the book and she'll be like, here's the secret mystery of what's really going on that's not said in the book, right? She does that a lot. Um, only she used to. She hasn't done it so much recently because she's been producing the new stuff. Um, but that was kind of her approach often. Um, Tolkien doesn't do that, right? Again, he'll fill in gaps and answer questions when people ask sometimes. Um, but what he does is he goes through and he quotes the text and then does analysis of the text and says, like, you know, if you read it carefully... This is what it says. Um, he his his ability to kind of distance himself from his own text and to be a reader and do a reading of his own text. Um, he, again, he's very good at this and he's very careful about it. Um, and this is why I I don't I I absolutely don't think that this question, like why does it never occur to Gildor to help them, right? To go along with them and make sure make hundred percent sure they go to Rivendell. I can't believe that he never asked that question. I really don't believe it. Um, it's li- it, it, it is it is related to it's sort of in the same genre as um, uh, as the the why didn't they fly the eagles to Mordor question, which I have to admit, the why didn't they fly the eagles into Mordor question I find annoying, um, and the reason I find it annoying is that it's not a very interesting or thoughtful suggestion, right? It's a it's a sort of quick and dirty suggestion for people who haven't really thought very much about the books. Because, of course, the easy answer to that one is, it wouldn't have worked. Because I'm not stupid, is why. It wouldn't have worked. You know, Sauron, A, is quite aware of what's going on in the in the, in the sky above his uh, his land, and B, he has an air force, right? So, like, that's just, that would that would not be a good plan at all. And there are other ways and other answers to give to that question, namely, like, it would have been a crappy story and nobody would have read it uh, had uh, they tried to solve the thing that way. Um, but it's exactly Tony Mead. Tolkien does get involved with his text as if it were, uh, as if he were receiving it as a scholar uh, rather than just sort of glo- glossing it as the author. Absolutely. I love that. Um, anyway, okay. So I'm going to operate. As we talk about this issue, I'm going to operate on the assumption that this is not something that just went over Tolkien's head, just went past Tolkien, right? For some reason, he has made the choice not to have Gildor engage with this, right? That, like, Gildor is concerned, he's worried about Frodo, but apparently saying, hey, we took you a part of the way, we're just going to take you the rest of the way to Rivendell. That's apparently not on the table. Right. Um, why not? Why isn't that on the table? Okay. So um, uh, let's. Um, yeah, it's exactly way off. Um, uh, uh, Sauron, unlike Morgoth, has an air force. Right. The whole ring, the whole eagle thing would have worked if it had been Morgoth because Morgoth didn't have an air force. Uh, but Sauron does. So, okay. All right. So let's uh, let's look at. Let's go back. This is where it gets dangerous because I've added 
digression slides. Uh, let's go back and look. We've looked at these passages before, so we'll, we'll look at them more quickly. But I want to look at them in order to ask this, this the, you know, Doc Singles' is very excellent, specific question. What information do we get from this scene to answer the question, why doesn't Gildor just say, hey, I've got a brilliant idea. We'll, we'll come along. Frodo says, what can I do now? My plan was to leave the Shire secretly and make my way to Rivendell, but now my footsteps are dogged before ever I get to Buckland. I think you should still follow that plan, said Gildor. I do not think the road will prove too hard for your courage, but if you desire clearer counsel, you should ask Gandalf. I do not know the reason for your flight, and therefore I do not know by what means your pursuers will assail you. These things Gandalf must know. I suppose that you will see him before you leave the Shire? Okay, so, first of all, um, the very first thing that we can see here is that it's not necessarily as simple as it might sound. That is to say, remember, Gildor does not know about the ring. So this is not a question of Gildor being like, so here's a hapless hobbit, right, with the ring of power, and the Nazgul are closing in all around. We're just going to let them toddle off, and Sauron will probably become victorious and take over the world, but not my problem, I'm out of here, right? It, that's not quite the situation, right? He does not know what's going... He can see. He knows the Nazgul are there. He does know that they're pursuing Frodo, right? But he, as he says, I don't know the reason for your flight, right? I, 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 I you know, he's, he, uh, and he thinks they're going to see Gandalf, right? You, I suppose you'll see Gandalf before you leave the Shire, Right. Um, so that the situation, there are therefore two reasons why Gildor doesn't think the situation, doesn't know that the situation is quite as dire as it really is, right? But that's not a complete answer, right? That's, I mean, obviously it would be unsatisfying just to be like, he didn't realize, but boy, did he feel stupid later, right? It's, it's not, it's not, it's not as simple as that, obviously. I mean, we already saw last week that he seems to be reading, um, uh, Frodo's thought, to some extent, right? So, I mean, he knows enough to make a shrewd guess at the fact that, um, you know, they probably need help, right? So that's, uh, that doesn't seem, uh, um, that doesn't seem like the, certainly doesn't seem like a satisfying question. Um, Matt says he likes that Gildor believes that Bilbo's heir is courageous enough to handle Nazgul. Matt, I, I, I do think that's... I mean, it's not that I think that he thinks Frodo can take him, right? Uh, but, but he... There is a kind of interesting anti-paternalism here, right? He does not say, you are clearly hopeless little hobbit, right? Come, let us... Um, let me take you under my... Because obviously there's no possible way you can get to Rivendell on your own. It is interesting that that's not his attitude, right? He sees, like, yeah... You're in some danger here, right? Um, uh, and it would be a good idea for you to meet up with Gandalf, right? He probably knows uh, what's going on and can certainly help you better, and I can see that you need help. But he's not like, oh, if, if, without me, you will certainly fail, right? That's He doesn't operate on that assumption. So that by itself is already interesting. He gives, in a sense, he gives Frodo the benefit of the doubt, right? Which is really interesting. Um, so, uh... Yeah, Stephanie uh, uh, says perhaps that would involve Gildor a bit too much in the decision-making process for Frodo. And Stephanie, that's just what I was going to say next, right? That another important thing, why there are 
two reasons, right? Why Gildor does not know that the Ring of Power is in in play here in this situation. One is that he 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 does not seem to read that in Frodo's thought, and the other is um, Frodo doesn't tell him, right? He could do, right? But he chooses not to, and that's his choice. And I think the idea, Stephanie, as you're suggesting, that Gildor is essentially honoring Frodo's choice. Would Gildor go if Frodo asked him? We don't know, because he doesn't, right? That doesn't come up. And I can't think that Frodo isn't thinking that, right? So to me, that's actually as good a question as why doesn't Gildor offer? Why doesn't Frodo ask, right? But he doesn't ask, and Gildor doesn't offer. And I do think, you know, Matt, as you were saying, and Stephanie, as you were as you were suggesting, I do think that part of the issue here is Gildor saying they have chosen their path. It's obviously a dangerous path that they've chosen, and he does help them, right? Um, but I'm not just going to come in and take over for them because that wouldn't be the right thing to do, right? Um, yeah, so, okay, um, yeah, Tony Mead suggests that after the quest of Erebor, the wise have learned a thing or two about the metal of hobbits, uh, perhaps, perhaps, um, uh, yeah, yeah, let's keep going. By the way, I have three digression slides. We're almost done with the, okay, we're not, we're halfway through the digression. Okay. I think you should go now at once, without delay. This is this is the advice that he, for friendship's sake, though kind of grudgingly, gives. And if Gandalf does not come before you set out, then I also advise this. Do not go alone. Take such friends as are trusty and willing. Now you should be grateful, for I do not give this counsel gladly. The elves have their own labors and their own sorrows, and they are little concerned with the ways of hobbits or of any other creatures upon earth. Our paths cross theirs seldom, by chance or purpose. In this meeting there may be more than chance, but the purpose is not clear to me, and I fear to say too much. So, a couple things here. right? We talked about this passage last time, but again, thinking about it in the context of this question in particular, there are two things that I would emphasize. First, um, we don't know what Gildor is doing. He might have a job. Right? I know he talks as if we're just walking around, singing, right? Um, you know what that makes me think of? It makes me think of Tom Bombadil, right? When Frodo asks Tom Bombadil, did you hear us, Master, or was it chance, right? And Tom Bombadil says, hear you? No, I didn't hear you. I was too busy singing, right? Um, uh, and when he lists, he... Uh, and, and do you remember similarly when Tom Bombadil runs down his list, runs through his list of chores, right? My talking and my walking, <laughs> right? The, like he's got, I've got, I've got, I, I've got to sing a song about my, about the color of my clothing. Then I've got to walk over there and I've got to talk to some things like, you know, birds and uh, otters and things like that. And then I, I'm going to have to sing some more after that. And then I have an appointment to do some dancing over there, right? Tom Bombadil has a full schedule. Right now, again, from our perspective, from the Hobbit's perspective, he seems idle. Right? Is he idle? I think that would be presumptuous of us to say we don't understand what he's doing. Does that mean that what he's doing isn't important? I don't know. So, is Gildor on a mission? 
can he afford to take time? We don't know. Again, it sounds like we're, oh, they're just hanging out, right? But is it just that it seems that way to us? Remember back to, what, two or three classes ago now, the, cl- the class when we were first meeting the elves and we were talking about the elvishness, you know, the, the, the sort of the encounter with alienness, right, that we get in, uh, uh, in this whole sequence. And it's something that Tolkien maintains pretty scrupulously through his through the encounters that we get with the elves. And it's something that I hope that we can notice as we go through. Elves are not like us. They don't think like us. They don't see the world the same way we do. They don't have the same priorities that we have. Um, it may seem to us like, Gildor, whatever you're doing can totally wait, right? Frodo's situation is more... And again... And that's easy for us to say because we know he has the Ring of Power. But as Doc Singles was suggesting in, uh, you know, the, the title of his post was, you know, Gildor, help a hobbit out, right? Um, you know, we think, well, like, Good Samaritan principle, right? I mean, obviously this is somebody in need, so come on, Gildor, right? You know, you know, get off your elvish butt and help the hobbits in need? How hard is that, right? They're being pursued by the, uh, you know, by the, uh, the servants of the enemy. But again, that's easy for us to say because we don't know what he's doing and why it might be important, right? Uh, so again, that th- that's a pretty recurrent theme with elves that, like, what they're doing. You know, as he says, you know, the elves have their own labors and their own sorrows, and they are little concerned with the ways of hobbits. You can read that as him just being like, "We can't be bothered," right? Um, you know, we we. We've got our own stuff that we're thinking about, and I can't, I can't, I can't be troubled to take time with your little concerns. It's possible to read it like that, but I don't think that that is the inevitable way to think about it. And the way that he ends this paragraph is what convinces me that that's not what he means there. That instead, what he means is, we are trying to follow our purpose. Like we've got a job, and we're trying to do our job. Okay, it's a different job from your job. You might not get our job. Right, our job keeps us busy. We are a little concerned with the ways of hobbits. Hobbits are not part of our remit. Right, it is not, in fact, the elves' job to help every hobbit in need when they get into trouble in the woods of the Shire. Right, that is not his job. Their paths cross the paths of others, seldom by chance or by purpose. That is to say, I've got a job, but my job rarely includes this kind of duty. Therefore, I'm not assuming that this is my job, right? I keep saying job because of his emphasis on purpose. In this meeting, there may be more than chance, but the purpose is not clear to me, and I fear to say too much. He believes in purpose, right? He believes that all this stuff is, that he's got a job, that Frodo's got a job, that things are happening that are supposed to happen, but he doesn't know what he's supposed to do. So he's like, look, unless I get marching orders, I'm not going to go. Not because I don't care, not because it doesn't matter what happens to Frodo, but because that's not, that might not be, you know, remember Goadriel wants for what should be, you know, she says she wants that, that what should be shall be, right? Is that what should be? Is that the, would it make it worse somehow? he, He doesn't know. We don't know, right? And he's not, so that sort of like, Clearly, this is a job for the High Elves. 
It's not obvious. It might be obvious to us. It's not obvious to them. Um, and I think that that's... Um, I think that that's important. I think that... The, and again, I come back to what Matt and Stephanie were saying about both respecting the hobbits enough to say, I'm not assuming you need me to rescue you here. And also... Uh, affirming his choice to say, look, you haven't even asked for help, so I'm certainly not going to... Even that he would seem to sort of take as an indicator, okay, not my job, I guess, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, more. One more. One more digression slide. Is it not enough to know that they are servants of the enemy? Answered Gildor. Flee them. Speak no words to them. They are deadly. And ask no more of me. But my heart forebodes that ere all is ended, you, Frodo, son of Drogo, will know more of these fell things than Gildor and Glorian. May Elbereth protect you. But where shall I find courage? asked Frodo. That is what I chiefly need. Courage is found in unlikely places, said Gildor. Be of good hope. Sleep now. In the morning we shall have gone, but we will send our messages through the lands. The wandering companies shall know of your journey, and those that have power for good shall be on the watch. I name you Elf Friend, and may the stars shine upon the end of your road. My final point. Gildor does help them. By my count, four times. In this passage. On digression slide number three, I count four times that Gildor has given active assistance to Frodo to protect Frodo and help him make it to Rivendell. Without being paternalistic and assuming that it's his job to do it for him and to keep it in and without being asked and without knowing for sure what the purpose is, he has done again by my count four things to help him. Thing number one. May Elbereth protect you, he says. I do not believe... There, there are twice he gives him a blessing in this scene, and I don't think that those are empty words. When he says, May Elbereth protect you, at the beginning, and when he says at the end, May the stars shine upon the end of your road, this is an elvish benediction, both times. These are elvish benedictions. Elves don't just do words, right? Words that don't mean anything. Um, I think that there is efficacy there. Um, uh, he, he, um, <laughs> yeah, well off, you're right. He doesn't elf-splain. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> no, he doesn't. Um, words and being, right? Uh, saying a thing and making it come to pass, this is, these things are very close for elves. Um, when he bestows a blessing upon Frodo, I, I believe that an effective blessing has been dis- bestowed. It's how it works, right? How do you bestow a curse? You don't have to, like, go through a ritual and carve a circle. It's, what do you do? You speak the words, right? Under certain, with certain will, under certain circumstances, Right? And a curse comes about. How do you bless? You speak a blessing, right? Uh, and if you are, um, uh, if you are somebody, right? If you have the power to bring a blessing with your words, it happens, right? Um, so, 
I think that he has just blessed Frodo here, and we will see. He's going to have several more close scrapes with Black Riders, right? Um, and with Willow Trees, and with Barrow Whites. Um, and he's going to get through everything. Is may, Might it be that Gildor's blessing has something to do with that? It's possible. Yes, yeah, thank you. Way off. Yeah, um, uh, Alia Eru was asking, what does Inglorian mean? Uh, 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 of the House of Inglor, is what that is what that means. Um, yeah, so it's 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 like a family name essentially. Okay, so so yeah, when you speak an oath, when you speak a curse, again, Isildur didn't do anything, right? When he cursed the Oathbreakers, other than just say, let me let me tell you what's going to happen now, and it happens, right? So twice he blesses him. That's two of the four things that he does. The other two. Um, the wandering company shall know of your journey, and those that have the power for good shall be on the watch, right? I'm going to put out the word. I'm going to make sure that everyone else who has power for good is going to be watching out for you as you go through. We know we will meet others who will have gotten the word, right? We will know that we know that that message has come, will, will have been delivered, Right. Um, I suspect that it might be at work in the background, even when we're not hearing it referred to. Right. So that's the third thing. And the, and the most obvious of the four, uh, the, the last one, well, the third in sequence is, uh, as, uh, uh one of you was saying before, yes, Milthalia, um, as Milthalia says, naming him elf friend changes Frodo, too. Absolutely. Yeah. I name you Elfrend. That's also conferring a blessing on him. But again, as Nathalia, I really like the way you said that. He's not just saying, like, Frodo, from now on, you're my BFF, right? It's like, you know, I consider you a friend. It's not that, right? It's not even like, I consider you a friend, and, you know, I'm going to put in a good word for you with all the other elves, too. So hopefully they'll think of you as a friend as well, right? No. This changes something about him. It makes him different. Um, and that also is going to have an impact. We will see that have an impact. I believe that the direct consequences of Gildor's blessing and naming on Frodo are seen at Weathertop. I believe that it is these things that help, that help him at Weathertop. It's his own will and his own choice as well. But remember his first blessing here, may Elbereth protect you. And what happens when he's confronted by the Nazgul and is about to get stabbed into, into wraithhood, right? What does he do? He draws his sword and lunges forward, crying, Ah, Elbereth Gilthoniel, right? Calling out to Elbereth in the words that he heard Gildor saying, right? I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, the blessing, the blessing is on him, Right? And he he has been changed. He has been altered by that. And I think that Elbereth is protecting him in that moment, right? As Aragorn believes, clearly believes. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Freya, this this name change does work out, work out a little better for Frodo than it did for Turin, certainly. Yes, yes. Um, so, okay. So, to sum up, Gildor does help, right? He gives very material assistance to Frodo. He doesn't just be... He, he's not just like, I can't be bothered, right? He does not 
take it upon himself to take over, right? And, you know, hold Frodo under the crook of his arm and, and guide him all the way through it. Totally makes sense. And it, it totally makes sense to ask why the heck would he not do that under the circumstances? Isn't it rather cold of him to be like, have fun dodging the Nazgul, right? We're out of here. I, I get that. But again, it's respect for Frodo's choice and respect for them. But then also, as I was saying from di- digression slide number two, we don't know the big picture. We don't know Gildor's big picture. Um, and it may be he has a good reason not to take a detour here. Maybe there, there might be something else he is supposed to be doing that we don't know. But more, he seems to perceive this isn't his job. He doesn't do this because he's not supposed to do this. Right? Um, and truly, it works out. And indeed, f- what happens to Frodo... Um, you know, I think about you know the line from Sam Gamgee later on. Right, of course we've all had a bit of schooling, so to speak, since we left home. Uh, he says that in Parth Galen. Remember, um, Frodo needs his bit of schooling, right? It may well be that had Gildor, you know, bundled Frodo up under his cloak or put him up behind him on the back of a horse and taken off with him for Rivendell, that Frodo might not have been equipped to do what he needs to do down the road. Right? Maybe that is the sense in which, or the reason why Gildor is saying, mm, I'm not feeling it. Right? I don't think that's my job, so I'm not going to just assume that it's my job. Okay. That's my answer, but I, I, I hope you understand why I wanted to take some time with that one. Uh, there are two reasons. Again, first, because it's a really important category of question. That kind of um, you know, when you see that kind of thing, a thing which looks like an obvious plot hole, right, from one point of view, to say, like, well, gosh, do, wouldn't it be obvious for them to do this? Why on earth didn't they do that? Um, often, I think that those lead to some really interesting things when we look at them carefully. The second reason <clears throat> is um, I wanted to I wanted to go back and, and look at... That's why I did my digression slides. I wanted to go back and look at some text to to sort of look at how, just as a kind of example, because I thought this was an important question, uh, sort of an example of like, how do we answer these questions, right? Um, how do we go, let's, let's, let's go back and review the evidence together and see the questions that kind of uh, emerge. Um, okay. Um, yeah, Tony Mead says it's all part of the training the hobbits need for the scouring. Yeah, well, there's that as well, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready? Let's move on to slide one. Now that we're now that we're finished with that. Chapter four. In the morning, Frodo woke refreshed. He was lying in a bower made by a living tree, with branches laced and looping and drooping to the ground. His bed was of fern and grass, deep and soft and strangely fragrant. The sun was shining through the fluttering leaves, which were still green upon the tree. He jumped up and went out. Sam was sitting on the grass near the edge of the wood. Pippin was standing, studying the sky and weather. There was no sign of the elves. "'They have left us fruit and drink and bread,' said Pippin. "'Come and have your breakfast. The bread tastes almost as good as it did last night. I did not want to leave you any, but Sam insisted.'" Um, okay. What do we notice about the, again, thinking in connection with what we were looking at with uh, the Elvish Woodhall, right, and uh, uh, sort of their relationship with the landscape and this whole um, this whole elf you know, sort of elf glade 
that the hobbits have been brought to. One of the things that's interesting to me is that there's still stuff there. That might seem like an obvious kind of thing, right? But what I mean is, um, it's no surprise that when the mortal creatures stumble upon elves walking, singing through the woods at night, the fact that the elves don't vanish instantly is the surprise. The fact that the elves instead hail them, take them with them a little bit on their journey, and bring them to a feast within their elf circle, um, that's a pleasant surprise, right? The fact that they have vanished when they wake up in the morning is no surprise at all. What's interesting to me is that they haven't disappeared without trace. And Tarlonio, yes, the fairy food didn't disappear. It almost always disappears, right? You can't bring, you can't put fairy drink in your water bottle and take it along with you. That doesn't normally happen. Um, so that's pretty remarkable. Um, you would expect, I mean, remember when the, the elf circles where the feasting was going and just completely vanished, right, in Mirkwood, in The Hobbit, when Thorin and company barged into them. Um, now, again, the hobbits here were welcome guests, not, you know, interlopers barging in from the forest. Obviously, the, the situation is different, but still, that's kind of the normal thing, that, like, either when you wake up or in a, in a you know, in a flash, they're just gone, and there's no evidence that they were ever even there, or maybe a little bit, but... Um, uh, anyway, it's... Um, so it's interesting to me that there are, there is evidence, right? Um, both they've left fruit and drink and bread, and, and Tarlonio, I totally agree with you. Under the circumstances, like, with the fairy tale context, that's quite surprising. They left breakfast. Um, and um, uh, Aurorion, uh, a challenging to pronounce name, um, Aururion says, I almost wonder if the food's meant to be a sort of mystery, like a sort of in-between, between fairy food and real food, with a sort of mystical feeling about it all. I agree there's a mystical feeling about it. I mean, remember um, the the description of the food, which we looked at, I think it was the week before last, um, it's not just superlative, right? The food that the elves give them is not just like that was the best bread I've ever had. I mean, it is the best bread they've ever had, but <clears throat> the comparisons, um, they reach for the most extreme contrasts that they can think of, right? Uh, the, the, the taste of the loaf surpassed that of a fair white loaf to one who is starving, right? So, like, imagine the, 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 the best most delicious bread you've ever imagined. Now imagine if you were eating it if you were completely starving, right? When anything tastes good. So bring those two extremes together. So like the, 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 like imagine the pinnacle of mortal food bliss, right? Uh, and the elvish bread was better than that, right? So I mean, this is not just like, and those elves, dang, they know how to bake, right? It's not just that. There is, I agree with you, Aururian, something magical about it. There's something magical about the drink, as well, right? Um, it's like distilled sunlight in their water bottles, right? Certainly alcoholic, but it, it is, it, uh, certainly it's intoxicating at the very least. Um, but yeah, there certainly does seem to be something, something, um, 
magical about it. But it's not just the food. It's the bower. He's lying in a bower, which is so like a like a like a bedchamber, made by a living tree with branches laced and drooping to the ground. So they're in like a like a weeping willow, right, inside this this tree bower, which is again, it's like it's not the wood hall, right? It's not the same thing, but it's like it, right? So just as with the wood hall, there were the you know the trees, the branches of course, which lace overhead and so make this roof inside this hall. So we have that hall that was formed by trees, and Frodo wakes up under a you know, in like a, a little bedchamber, like a like a you know, a, a curtained four poster made of a tree as well. Um and his bed was of fern and grass, deep and soft and strangely fragrant. The bed that he's lying on, of fern and grass, like so he's 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 on a he's on a botanical mattress, right, within a botanical bower, like the botanical mead hall, right, that they were eating in the night before. So we, this is an elf place. Again, this is not just business as normal. This is not just like, and now they wake up in the mortal world. That's clearly not. They're still in an elvish place, um, seeing this, interacting with the natural world in these elvish kind of ways. Um, James Stevens is asking, why is the bed strangely fragrant? Um, it smells like elves, obviously, right? Uh, everybody knows elves have a distinctive smell. Bilbo can tell it from a distance, right? Um, clearly, clearly, it smells like elves. Good, good. Gravity is reminding us about how the previous night uh, uh, he uh, has a root stuck in his back. Yeah, exactly. Um Sleeping on the ground is not always comfortable for the hobbits. Um, and remember the wonder of the fox, right? About uh, hobbits sleeping out under a uh, under a tree at night. This is a totally different sleeping out under a tree at night kind of situation, isn't it? Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. And and uh, C. Schwab, I agree with you. He says you never really know where the line is between what the elves find in nature in what they create or modify or enhance. Yes, I agree. And again, it was like what we were talking about last week about the word magic, right? Um, and how hard that question, like, was that magical? You know, did the elves do magic there? Is so difficult to answer so often in Tolkien. Um, yeah, so anyway, okay. So, first thing to notice, they wake up still in the elf place there's no sign of the elves, that is, they can't see any elves there, but in a sense, there are signs of elves all over the place, right? Um, Frodo is thinking. From Frodo's mind, the bright morning, treacherously bright, he thought, had not banished the fear of pursuit, and he pondered the words of Gildor. The merry voice of Pippin came to him. He was running on the green turf and singing. No, I could not, he said to himself. It is one thing to take my young friends walking over the shire with me until we are hungry and weary and food and bed are sweet. To take them into exile, where hunger and weariness may have no cure, is quite another, even if they are willing to come. The inheritance is mine alone. I don't think I ought even to take Sam. He looked at Sam Gamgee and discovered that Sam was watching him. I love that. Um... He's, of course, thinking about the advice that Gildor gave him, right? Uh, don't go alone. Take those that are trusty and willing, he says. That's exactly, or seems to be exactly, what 
Frodo is reluctant to do. That is to say, he's reluctant to take them with him. Not necessarily reluctant, like, to allow them to come, but he's reluctant to take them. You'll notice, what is he thinking, right? What is he imagining here? It seems to me that what he's kind of scripting in his head is him asking them, right? So he gets to Crick Hollow. And he's like, okay, I've got to explain to them that I've got to go, and then I've got to ask if they want to come with me. Right? So, uh, Mary and Pippin and Fatty Bulger would, uh, I have to go away, do you want to come? Is what he's imagining. Right? Again, that would seem to be following the advice of Gildor. Take those that are trusty and willing. I think I can trust you guys, so I want to ask, would you come with me? That, it seems, is what he is refusing to do. Right, um, he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to ask him. That's why, that's why I think he, when he says uh, uh, to take them into exile, is quite another. Right, I, I can't knowing what I know about where I'm going. Remember, remember the difficulty of uh, with Bilbo handing off the ring and and you know to Frodo and Gandalf saying like, no, Bilbo, you know, didn't know what it was going to. You know, he he little thought how important it would be right for him to choose his heir. Um, Frodo knows, right? He knows what he would be asking. Bilbo didn't know what he was. Frodo was getting in for when he left Frodo the Ring. Frodo knows exactly what he would be getting his friends into if he asked them to come along, but they can't possibly know, right? So even if they're willing, even if they say they'll come, he can't. He can't do it. Um, and yes, yes, uh, uh, Raven King, uh, Sam seems to be conspiring here. Um, this is Sam and 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 Tom. You're right. Uh, 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 Whale off is pointing out the 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 sort of the the, the amusing uh, fact that uh, Frodo is thinking serious thoughts and uh, have and having a serious discussion with Sam while Pippin is reenacting the sound of music in the background. Yeah, Pippin is running on the green turf and singing, right? Like one does, right? That's that's uh, there's there's Pippin there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but let's uh, carry on with uh, Sam. Well, Sam, he said, what about it? I am leaving the Shire as soon as ever I can. In fact, I have made up my mind now not even to wait a day at Crick Hollow if it can be helped. Very good, sir. I love Sam so much. You still mean to come with me? I do. It is going to be very dangerous, Sam. It is already dangerous. Most likely, neither of us will come back. If you don't come back, sir, then I shan't, that's certain, said Sam. Don't you leave him, they said to me. Leave him, I said? I never mean to. I'm going with him if he climbs to the moon, and if any of those black riders try to stop him, they'll have Sam Gamgee to reckon with, I said. They laughed. Um... Yeah. Oh, Matt, that's a really interesting observation. Matt says, Frodo is hesitating to draw his friends in the same way he was hesitating to draw Gildor in by not telling him too much. Yes, and remember, so Matt, there was that mutually, right? Gildor and Frodo. Frodo wasn't telling him much, and Gildor wasn't offering much in response. That is information or, or advice, right? He was reluctant to give advice because it's it's a dangerous gift because, you know, again, like our paths cross seldom, and I don't know... I don't know what's uh, 
uh, what's a pro right? But Sam is or Frodo rather is didn't wasn't bringing Gildor in on that right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so <laughs> the, the Discord audio just spontaneously started working. Weird. Didn't touch a thing. Anyway, okay. Um, I love I'm going with him if he climbs to the moon. And if any of those black riders try to stop him, they'll have Sam Gamgee to reckon with. Right? I'm going to come with him if he climbs to the moon. Um, now, that seems unlikely. Right? Um, but also a very charming... Um, a very charming statement by Sam. Not only because it shows, of course, his willingness to... Well, it shows the extremes to which he is willing to go to help Mr. Frodo. Um, but it also tells you what kind of stories he's been told. Right? Climb to the moon? Who would even think of that? I'll tell you who would think of that. Somebody who's hung around old Mr. Bilbo. That's who would. Right? Somebody who has, for instance, heard Mr. Bilbo sing the song about the man in the moon coming down... Uh, to have a drink at the pub, right? Uh, if the man in the moon could climb down, we might be able to climb up, right? Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, so anyway, I, I, I love how that... So remember, Sam has already gone further away from home than he's ever been, right? Um, the other thing that I take from that statement is Sam hasn't the faintest clue where they're going, like what it means, right? How far they have to travel, what it's going to look like when they get there. Um, so he falls back on sort of the myths and, and, and fairy tales and songs that he knows and loves, right? If we were in one of those songs, right, and we had to climb up to the moon and have a beer with the man in the moon, I would do it, right? Um, Pembernet, yes, following the moon path, right? Like Roverandum. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, I, I, I love the things that kind of are revealed about Sam there. Um, and his, uh, willingness to stand in for, um, um, for, in, you know, in front of the black riders, right? If any of those black riders try to stop him, they'll have Sam Gamgee to reckon with. Um, and the elves laughing at him, right? Um, yeah. Uh, let's keep going. Who are they? And what are you talking about? The elves, sir. We had some talk last night, and they seemed to know you were going away, so I didn't see the use of denying it. Wonderful folks. Wonderful folk, elves, sir. Wonderful. They are, said Frodo. Do you like them still, now that you have had a closer view? They seem a bit above my likes and dislikes, so to speak, answered Sam slowly. It don't seem to matter what I think about them. They're quite different from what I expected. So old and young, so gay and sad, as it were. Frodo looked at Sam, rather startled, half expecting to see some outward sign of the odd change that it seemed to have come over him. It did not sound like the voice of the old Sam Gamgee that he thought he knew, but it looked like the old Sam Gamgee sitting there except that his face was unusually thoughtful. Okay, so, um, elves, um, 
elves, res- you know, Frodo's response, or Sam's response to elves, right? The elves, sir, right? Wonderful folk, elves, sir. And that goes, I can't, I can't, I can't not see that phrase now when, when we come to it, right? We only get it twice, don't we? In this, uh, in this passage. Um, okay. Uh, what do we see? What do we see here? What is Sam's response to the elves? Um, three things, right? Four things. First, wonderful folk, elves, sir. Wonderful. Um, and I think that that word, we're so used to hearing Sam, or we're so used to hearing that word overused in general, right? Wonderful being used just as a kind of a vague compliment, right? It was really, really good. It was wonderful, right? Um, but I get the clear impression, especially in the repetition of the word, that Sam means that word quite literally, right? They're wonderful, right? I, the experience of meeting the elves was full of... I was full of wonder the whole time I was with them. They are, they are wonderful in that way. They induce very great wonder. Um, second thing that he says about them. They seem a bit above my likes and dislikes, so to speak. Right? Do you still like them? Sam is, it seems to me, entirely correct to say, like, I'm not going to rate them, right? Or I could be like, I give the elves four and a half stars, right? Um, uh, that's uh, not what he's going to do, right? Um, so even the question, Frodo's question is a bit of a, um, a, bit of a silly question. Um, do you like them still? Now you have had a closer view. Um, and I, I want to give Frodo some credit. I don't think he's asking a frivolous question or a patronizing question. Um, he knows that it's always been Sam's dream, dream to go see elves, sir, right? As we saw in chapter two. Um, he knows this about Sam. So he's asking Sam what I think is, in the end, although it seems silly, a rather sensible question, right? So your dream has come true. Right? Did you like it? Was it what you thought? Uh, because that's it's not always so, right? When the thing happens that we've always imagined, sometimes it's not what we thought it would be, and maybe we don't like it, right? Um, Sam's response, um, they, they seem a bit above my likes and dislikes, show that he's not thinking about himself, he's thinking about them, right? Um, Frodo seems to be asking about him. What are your reflections, Sam? What are your thoughts? Are you happy now that you've seen elves? And that seems a kind question to ask Sam. Sam's response absolutely shifts the attention from himself to the elves, right? It's not about me. Whether I liked or disliked the experience, totally irrelevant, right? It doesn't seem to matter what I think about them. And then he admits they're quite different from what I expected. And he tries to capture, um, he tries to capture what they were that was different. And he does so in two paradoxes, two contradictions. They were so old and young and so gay and sad. What strikes him is this sort of mixture. They seemed very old, but they also seemed very young. They seemed very gay, very cheerful, um, but they also seemed very sad. The fact that they were both of those things at once. And again, it seems that what Sam is kind of 
pointing to, right? What he's sort of pushing at. What is so wonderful about them is how different they are, right? Again, the, that sense of the elves' otherness. These are not like people, normal people, right? So again, you can't... Um, you can't... Uh, um, you can't just rate them on a normal scale, right? You can't compare them to, like, your other friends and neighbors or something, right? Because it's just different. Um, yeah. Um, Tarlonial, that's an interesting point. Uh, Tarlonial says, I didn't get much of a sense of sadness during the talk with Gildor. I wonder why Sam saw that. Um, yeah, well, remember, he also had other conversations with the elves, but nevertheless, it, they certainly seemed merry enough the whole time we saw them, right? Um, but the fact that Sam perceived that, I think it's just Sam's perceptiveness there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, maybe. Um, Lady Schmebelock says, I think, uh, oh, I, th- I think you explained your name is from Gravity Falls, the TV show. By the way, I've not seen that. Uh, it's on my short list. Uh, I'm, uh, it is, it is on my short list of things I'm waiting to come to Netflix. And by the way, thank you, those of you, uh, and I know a couple of you here tonight who pointed out on my Twitter feed recently that Babylon 5, one of the other shows I've been waiting to come to Netflix, is now, uh, streaming for free on the internet. And it is totally, uh, I've, I've got, I'm, I'm committed to my Star Trek viewing, and I'm 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 gonna see it through. Uh, but 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 Babylon Five comes right after that, and then it, it, when I get the chance, I am totally gonna watch Gravity Falls. So just just to let you know that that's uh, I'm aware of it, and it's on my list. Okay, um, so we'll come back, of course, to Sam's further reactions. But I agree with somebody who said this uh, a, a while early on that um, Sam is um, um, Sam is is. Oh, it was you, Lady Shmebalak. Uh Sam is one of the deeper thinkers, even though people count him out. Yes, he is. Uh, you know, he talks like a bumpkin because he is a bumpkin, right? Um, but that doesn't mean he's. Uh, it doesn't mean he's dumb, right? And it doesn't mean that he is. Uh, um, uh, that he's not a careful thinker. He's. Uh, by the way, I wouldn't give Pippin too tough a time here either. I mean, he may be out there doing the one man sound of music in the background. But I'm not at all sure that that's an insensitive or inappropriate response to the whole situation either. Um, it may well be that the elves, were they watching them, which, for all we know, they are, um, might well think that Pippin's response to the to the situation is the most appropriate of the three. But anyway, um, uh. We'll get this in a second. One last thing. This came up on the discussion board, too, but I was planning to talk about it when we got here anyway. Um, this is something that I missed forever. I, I didn't notice this for years and years and years. When did Sam have this conversation with the elves? It has to have been after Frodo fell asleep. Right? Frodo says, I will sleep now, and the elves take him to where Pippin is already lying. Sam fell asleep, right? Or seemed to be sleeping, out by Gildor. And it's clearly then, because Sam's faking it, that he had his conversation with the elves. 
right? Uh, so, uh, Matt, I, I believe you mentioned this a while back, and I totally agree with you. Matt says that that this brings the tally up to five ways in which Gildor has concretely assisted Frodo's journey um, in having the talking to with Sam at the end. Uh, unlike Frodo, Gildor clearly was not fooled by Sam's sham snores, right? The elves know that Sam's awake, and they talk with him after Frodo goes to sleep. Um, and when they talk, they have, they don't you leave him, they tell him. They might not perceive the purpose of the meeting between them and the hobbits, but they clearly perceive Sam's purpose, right? They know why he's there, and they urge him to follow his calling. Um, don't you leave him, they say to him, right? Um, so yes, helping to ensure that Sam stays with Frodo is definitely, I agree, Matt, another very concrete way in which they've helped. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, Frodo to Sam. Do you feel any need to leave the Shire now, now that your wish to see them has come true already? He asked. Yes, sir. I don't know how to say it, but after last night I feel different. I seem to see ahead in a kind of way. I know we are going to take a very long road into darkness, but I know I can't turn back. It isn't to see elves now, nor dragons, nor mountains that I want. I don't rightly know what I want, but I have something to do before the end, and it lies ahead, not in the Shire. I must see it through, sir, if you understand me. I don't altogether, but I understand that Gandalf chose me a good companion. I am content. We will go together. Um... Yes, Milthaliel, I think purpose is exactly the word for what Sam is trying to say. Again, Gildor used that word, right? I don't see, you know, what the purpose is, I don't know, right? It's it's not known to him. Um, Sam seems to see ahead in a kind of way. Uh, Does that mean he knows what's coming, like he's been given, like, a vision of the future? No, right? I mean, he says, uh, I know we are going to take a very long road into darkness, Right, but I know I can't turn back. So uh, he he doesn't see anything concrete about the road ahead. He knows the task, right? We are going on this long road into darkness. You're going on this long road into darkness, and I'm coming with you, right? And I can't turn back. It is my job to go with you on that road. Um, why does he go? It's not about his desire. With Sam, it was, right? We saw the desire in Sam, the desire for the wonderful, right? The desire for... And with and elves is sort of the embodiment of all of that magical, um, you know, mythic, wonderful story material that he got from Bilbo. Um, he believed those tales, whatever Ted Sandyman might say, right? And he was drawn to them. Um, he wanted to go for that reason. His desire for elves or dragons, mountains, the things from all the stories that Bilbo used to tell, right? Especially his own story, right? Which can features elves, dragons, and mountains, right? Um, it's not Sam's desire for these things anymore that is guiding him. Instead, uh, his new desire. I have something to do before the end, and it lies ahead. I must see it through, sir, Right? He has now simply a sense of purpose. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and he is 
unshakable is exact is a very good word for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Milthalio says, thinking about this scene uh, sort of makes me wonder how Frodo thought that he would be able to lose Sam at the end of the Fellowship. Yeah. Uh, uh, quoting this scene at the end of, uh, at that moment in the Fellowship of the Ring film was one of the smartest pieces of script writing uh, Peter Jackson's team did. One of my favorite moments from the entire film uh, is uh, Sam referring to the uh, the promise that he'd made. Though, interestingly, he doesn't, here he doesn't promise, Right. Um, he doesn't make an, an oath, right? He states an awareness of a purpose and a statement of a desire. He wants to see it through. He knows it's what he should do. Not that he's obligated to do, not that he's doomed to do. He must see it through. I, this is something I need to do, right? Something I want to do. Um, I am content. So this is the end of Frodo thinking, I can't really take them. All right. Um, let's leap ahead um, all the way to the third page of uh, uh, chapter uh, four, which is super exciting, um, and look at the debate over the road. Um, so they're trying to decide how they're going to get to Buckleberry Ferry. Right? Um, they can either go by the road, which is the obvious path and the safe path, or they can cut straight across country. Frodo is arguing for cutting across country. Pippin doesn't want to do it. Shortcuts make long delays, argued Pippin. The country is rough round here, and there are bogs and all kinds of difficulties down in the Marish. I know the land in these parts. And if you are worrying about black riders, I can't see that it's any worse meeting them on, on a road than in a wood or field. It's less easy to find people in the woods and fields, answered Frodo. And if you're supposed to be on the road, there is some chance that you will be looked for on the road and not off it. All right, said Pippin, I will follow you into every bog and ditch. But it's hard. I had counted on passing the golden perch at stock before sundown. The best beer in the East Farthinger used to be. It's a long time since I tasted tasted it. That settles it, said Frodo. Shortcuts make delays, but inns make longer ones. At all costs, we must keep you away from the golden perch. We want to get to Buckleberry before dark. What do you say, Sam? I will go along with you, Mr. Frodo, said Sam, in spite of private misgivings and a deep regret for the best beer in the East Farthing. Then if we are going to toil through bog and briar, let's go now, said Pippin. Um, I don't uh, uh, want to make too much of this. Um, that is to say, I don't want to... Um, uh, I don't want to make it sound like I'm doing like a some kind of wacky allegorical reading of this or something. But I have always found the placement of this discussion kind of interesting, right? Coming as it does, right after the um, this conversation with Frodo and Sam, right when Sam is explaining his new purpose and his choice to stick to Frodo no matter what, uh, and to go on this journey into darkness, and Frodo's decision that he can't ask, you know, he can't try to take Merry and Pippin along with him, um, and uh, immediately they have a a choice of paths, right? Are we going to go this way or are we going to go that way? And um, again, like it's not like you know the road is a 
symbol of this and the straight way across the, you know, the shortcut across, across country is, a, you know, a symbol of, of, uh, you know, choosing the, the harder and darker path. Uh, that would be uh, kind of uh, uh, hokey uh, in a, a, a sort of a hokey English teachery kind of way. Um, but, um, but I do think it's important that they have a choice to make and a choice which divides them right um a choice you know where the and and that his choice is against pippin right not to do what pippin wants again these things seem to me um um a significant expression again not 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 necessarily a symbolic expression but an expression of frodo's state of mind and his recognition of the situation, even the choice to cut across country, it's strange, right? He knows the country around here too, right? Um, I do not believe that Pippin knows the country and Frodo doesn't, and if Frodo knew the land as well as Pippin, he would never have suggested this. I don't think that that's the case. Um, I mean, he does seem more confident than Pippin that they can navigate a straight cut across country. But I don't think it's just ignorance speaking. Um, and Pippin, with greater experience, says, dude, stick to the road, you'll thank me if we do. Um, I don't think it's just that. Frodo knows this land, too. He's been here. Um, and he's crossed this place several times before. Um, but again, what is he doing? He's going into danger, right? Um, he has two paths, and he rejects the path that seems easiest, right? Um, because that's the path of danger. Again, I'm not saying it's symbolic, but I am saying that's a thing we're going to see a bunch of times. And that's a pattern we're going to notice. When you have um, two paths, choosing the easy path seems usually not to be correct. And it's really interesting to me that sort of beginning anew after his encounter with the elves, beginning anew his his quest and his purpose and his mission... Um, he's immediately confronted by that choice. Not just the choice between two ways, but the choice between an easy way and a difficult way. And he chooses the difficult way. And it immediately... um, It immediately bears dividends. Because they chose the easy way, they avoid the Black Rider, which immediately is on the path that they just left behind. Right? Had they stayed on, had they not gone cut cross-country, they would have been caught. Right? Or at least they would have had to, you know, hide behind trees again and probably gotten sniffed out. Um, uh, yes, well, off. what I'm trying to say is there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. That's more or less what I'm saying. I think that seems like a pretty good way to say it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> You know, uh, speaking of which, I uh, drove to Vermont and back, to Burlington, Vermont, and back last weekend for the uh, uh, Tolkien in Vermont conference, which was wonderful. And um, uh, on the way to and from, my uh, uh, 14-year-old son and I were listening to, we listened to like four or five Wed Zeppelin albums uh, on the way up and back. And uh, I was, you know, educating uh, the younger generation. And, uh, you know, of course, I was... I was uh, I always 
am thinking about the Tolkien references when they come up in, in Zeppelin songs. And, you know, the, the, the more I think about it, the more, uh, like, nonsensical uh, the <laughs> references to Tolkien in Zeppelin are. I mean, like, I love the fact that Robert Plant loves Tolkien so much. Just love that. But he doesn't seem to get it very well. Um... Uh, anyway, at least that's kind of the impression that his references leave me with. But anyway, whatever. Um, okay. Um, let's keep going. <laughs> I don't have a digression slide for Ed Zeppelin. <laughs> but anyway. Um, okay. The hobbit scrambled down a steep green bank and plunged into the thick trees below. This is embarking on the... Uh, um, uh, on the 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 course uh, the the the, the non easy course here, um, and um, again, what I want to draw your attention to here is this is more of that that landscape description, which is so easy to kind of let your eyes gloss over and look for the next important like piece of dialogue or whatever. I'm not assuming that any of you do that, but I know it happens. Um, uh, okay. Their course had been chosen to leave Woodhall to their left and to cut slanting through the woods that clustered along the eastern side of the hills until they reached the flats beyond. Seems simple enough, right? Then they could make straight for the ferry over country that was open, except for a few ditches and fences. Frodo reckoned they had eighteen miles to go in a straight line. He soon found that the thicket was closer and more tangled than it, than it had appeared. There were no paths in the undergrowth, and they did not get on very fast. When they had struggled to the bottom of the bank, they found a stream running down from the hills behind in a deeply dug bed with steep, slippery sides overhung with brambles. Most inconveniently, it cut across the line they had chosen. They could not jump over it, nor indeed get across it at all without getting wet, scratched, and muddy. They halted, wondering what to do. First check, said Pippin, smiling grimly. Told you so, Frodo. Um... And, uh, yeah, yeah, Pippin uh, never passes up an opportunity to give Frodo a hard time. Um, uh, yeah. Finn, that's a good idea. Of course, Finn, sorry, Finn is pointing out that Robert Plant was writing his lyrics back in the 60s when Tolkien was brand new to everybody. It was right in the, in the, in the middle of the, the um, you know, the, it was, well, at the tail end, anyway, of the boom, right? Um, the Tolkien boom in America. And, um... Uh, yeah, so Finn says, I'd like to talk to Plant now and see if he gets it now. Um, we should do that, Finn. Let's do an interview with Robert Plant. Wouldn't that be awesome? So, Robert Plant, you know, have you maintained a lifelong relationship with Tolkien? And let's talk about Tolkien. And, uh, what do you think about the stories and his influences? I totally want to do that. Somebody see if we can get Robert Plant's agent. Let's, 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 let's have Robert Plant in for a discussion. Anyway, um... Um, and then Tony, there's the drugs. I know there's that too. Um, but anyway, no, I would, I would be totally interested to talk about, talk to, talk about talking to, to Robert Plant. Um, let's make this happen, people. Um, so, okay. Anyway, sorry. Landscape description. So what do we see here? Right. Um, the emphasis in this passage, right, is Frodo's plan, right? First we get... First, we get the path uh, laid out as Frodo imagines it, right? What he intended to do, what he intended to happen. Um, and uh, 
Yeah, because Amy sounds really simple, right? And remember, the place where they started is like on a hill looking down so they, they can see the whole thing laid out in front of them. So from the top, you can see it, right? Okay, we have to go down these hills to the east, right? And we can see there's a, some trees right there, so we're going to cut through that forest. And then it's farmland on the other side, right? We can just cut straight across. No problem, right? Um, so there's the journey as he sees, foresees it, right? As he sees it from above. Um, and there's the journey as it actually happens. And um, as soon as you actually get down into the thicket, right, you find that it's it's always closer and more tangled than it first appears, right? There are no paths. Uh, it, you know, you've got the, uh, the, the them struggling through tight brush, and then there's this deep stream that they can't jump across, and now they've got to turn aside. They have a plan for what they're going to do, but the plan doesn't pan out, right? Um, the, the shortcut has gone crooked already, as Frodo will admit in a little bit, right? Um, and that's, that's the way of things, right? Um, I think that's, again, it's not exactly symbolic, but it, uh, there's a way in which I find both this choice and the beginning of their trek across country here to be a representative sample, right? This is what stepping out on the journey is really like. Um, yeah, yeah. And, Tony, of course, you're absolutely right. It's also very, uh, um, um, it's also very, uh, very realistic, right? Clearly, uh, this is clearly somebody who's actually walked across country, uh, and encountered obstacles like this. Okay. One more. They went on for perhaps another couple of miles. Then the sun gleamed out of ragged clouds again and the rain lessened. It was now past midday, and they felt it was high time for lunch. They halted under an elm tree. Its leaves, though fast turning yellow, were still thick, and the ground at its feet was fairly dry and sheltered. When they came to make their meal, they found that the elves had filled their bottles with a clear drink, pale golden in color. It had the scent of a honey made of many flowers, and was wonderfully refreshing. Very soon they were laughing and snapping their fingers at rain and at black riders. The last few miles, they felt, would soon be behind them. This, uh, this combination, right, of let's stop for a hobbity refreshment, right? Uh, let's park ourselves under a tree and have a nice lunch and relax a little bit, right? As, as this little sort of oasis in the middle of this very difficult morning of slogging through the brambles and the, and the, and the forests, right? Um, is, uh, it's a wonderful little hobbit moment. And then it gets touched with elvish magic, right? As they find that their bottles are full of this pale golden drink. Which this is what I was talking about when I said before that it's clearly alcoholic or at least intoxicating. Even if it maybe may, it may or may not be alcohol, but it's certainly intoxicating, right? Um, and um, um, and that seems to me again a really wonderful touch, right? The final moment of elvishness, right? This is the final touch of their encounter. But again, it seems to me another. Um, another indicator 
or uh, indicator is not the right word. Another example, illustration. Um, well, maybe I do like indicator. That the blessing of the elves goes along with them, right? This is a, a simple material way in which the, the sort of, you know, the elvish blessings of the night before have remained upon them even in the sunlight, well, even under the rain and in the mud, right? Um, but, um, but I think it's, 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 uh, seems to be, it's, it's a reminder, right? They have been blessed by the elves and they're going under the blessing of the elves. And of course, since it's elves, right? And it's these elves, how are they blessed? <laughs> with booze, right? With an intoxicating liquor, which doesn't just strengthen them, but makes them merry, right? They're laughing and snapping their fingers and not worrying or afraid of anything, right? That sort of refreshment to their spirit, this confidence and merriment, it's um, uh, it's definitely an elvish kind of, of uh, refreshment that they experience. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it it probably is some kind of mead. Several people are suggesting it's some kind of mead, but you know, I kind of think they would know what mead tasted like, maybe. Um, uh, and the fact that they don't know, I mean, like it, it has the scent of honey, which of course suggests mead, um, but it doesn't say it's mead. I, I mean, so it's I, I'm not sure that it is. Uh, it is that. Uh, simple, but um, yeah, some kind of elven, some kind of elvish microbrew, yeah, something like that. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Next. The song! But we don't have time. <laughs> we're going to have to leave it here, because uh, you know, I'm not going to rush through the song. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty much out of time. It's time for a field trip. Um, but, um, where I am not going to rush through the song in two minutes, not the drinking song, right? So, um, for the next three weeks, <laughs> I want you to be, uh, I want you to memorize ho, ho, ho to the bottle I go, right? Um, uh, and we'll talk about this poem and I'm especially interested in the juxtaposition of this song, not just a song, but this song by the Hobbits, with the cry of the um, of the of the the ringwraith that they hear right after this. Okay, so so we'll 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 pick up with that next time, and then we'll move forward into the Marish and towards Farmer Mag. We'll get to Farmer Maggot's fields next time. We're totally getting there. So again, so don't forget, uh, we got two more weeks, and uh, Maven, if I remember correctly, we're on um, Gladden next time, I believe. Gladden server three weeks from now, May 9th, is our next class. I got, I'm traveling, traveling with my family next week, and then at a conference in Indianapolis the week after that. Um, but uh, but yeah, so um, yeah, yeah. So so we're gonna. Um, that's that's where we'll be then. Okay. Um, so let us do our field trip. Okay. So tonight we are going to go... Okay, Gladden, I was right. Gladden server on May 9th. Um, we're going to go to the Shire again. 
Uh, tonight, I want to go to Brockenborings. Um, so I think that the easiest thing to do, again, the simplest way for us to travel there um, uh, is to go to Mikkeldelving. Um So we're just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do um, uh, swift travel here from the stable over to Mikkeldelving and then we can, uh, we can, we can meet up there. We should probably raid up again, I think would be simplest for tonight. And then, uh, um, and then we can uh, ride across to Brockenborg. Scary, technically, is actually where we're going tonight. All right. I guess I might as well mount up. All right. Oh, it's uh, it's uh, I believe it's regular time, nine thirty p.m. on uh, on the the ninth. Is what I believe I remember. What can I do for you? All right. Back to Mickle Delving, if you please. Okay, so what we're going to uh, what we're going to be looking at tonight, in general, is another example of the here. Let me. Um, another example of the sort of, uh, ah, thank you. Okay, let's do the same thing we did last time. Those of you who have joined the raid, come stand under this nice tree with me here. So if you're already in, stand down here once you, once you, once you get added. Unless, wait, is Maven not here? Can you not see everybody, Maven? Okay. Let's see. It's hard not having our audio connection through Discord. Um... Okay, you're on your way. Awesome. All right. Okay, so we'll get that set up here. There we go. All right, Maven's here and adding people. So when you're added, come come join us over here under the tree. Then we'll saddle up and head over. All right. Okay, so what I want to be looking at today is, again, I want to continue looking at sort of the pattern that we can see in many of the quest lines um, and individual quests that you get in the Shire. Um, because I think it's a lot of fun to see the overall pattern of how they do the story of the Shire. Um, and indeed, it's kind of comical when you look at the whole thing. You know, when you really kind of step back and you, you look at all the adventures that are happening across the Shire uh, altogether. Um, it becomes um, 
it becomes kind of uh, it becomes a little funny <laughs> because right here's the Shire is safe and comfortable, right? It's like the place where there's a firm foothold and there's never been any, you know, danger or anything like that in living memory. And um, <laughs> and then when you travel around the Shire, especially to the outskirts of the Shire, you find that although the center, like in Hobbiton, might be peaceful where Frodo was, everywhere else there's like every danger that has ever been experienced by anyone in the history of the Shire is like threatening to break out. Last week we looked at at uh, Budgeford, where the invasion of wolves of you know uh, uh, important memory from the time of uh, of of the fell winter and the invasion of the wolves across the frozen Brandywine um, uh, during Bilbo's youth, right? Um, you know that gets kind of commemorated in the invasion of wolves under the influence of the warg from. Uh, 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 from from Angmar, and we looked at the the growing brigands already down in the south and up in the north, right in the land that um, uh, that Lotho Pimple has bought up up there near Dwelling uh, in the North Farthing. We've seen the Walking Tree. We talked about giant spiders, right, which are pr- kind of randomly there, and they they just kind of have to make a um, have to make up a, a, a you know they sort of make a a reason why like an explanation for how spiders get kind of imported into the into the Shire, but um, but of course they're there primarily because Bilbo fought giant spiders, right? So like they they have been a Hobbit enemy in in, in uh, days past, so therefore they um, um, you know they, that therefore therefore we see them. Um, you know, we get dwarves, which who are always crossing the Shire. Some of them are 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 pretty bad lots. Those dwarves, and we we see dwarves who are pretty bad lots up in the uh, up in the, the the northwest corner up there by Needle Hole in the Rushik Bog. We saw the stone troll, the statue of the troll who is caught out in the sunlight uh, up there on Troll Hill. Um, you know, stone a uh, uh, stone troll hill, uh, I think it's called, right out there in the Rushik Bog again, again because somebody in the Shire has experienced that. So again, it's like it's not just every th- every danger it's ever threatened the Shire before. It's every, every danger ever encountered by anybody in, uh, in the Shire um, uh, is kind of pressing in from all around. So uh, today we're going to look at another major example of that. So, okay, are we ready? We good? I think we got everybody. All right, here, I'm going to, uh, let's see, go to my raid chat and I'm going to turn off people's vitals. So they're blocking as little of my screen as possible. There we go. Okay. All right. Let us head off. I got my blue shield. That's good. All right. Yeah, uh, uh, JJ says, is this what the hobbits don't know they're being protected from? JJ, it's one of the things I really like about this, right? Um and uh, in fact, it's interesting. Uh, Grifflet, my burglar, um, with whom I'm doing the epic quest line on my Friday afternoon uh, Lotro streams, uh, not here on the Signum channel. That one I'm doing on the official Turbine. Uh, excuse me, not Turbine. Standing Stone stream uh, at Lotro stream. Twitch uh, uh, Twitch.tv/Lotro stream. Um, 1 p.m. on Friday afternoons. Anyway, uh, Grifflet is just getting to the point in the epic quest line where you collect the Grey Company together, which I just think is the most brilliant concept uh, for um, uh, uh, for an adventure that we know that the Grey Company has gathered together um, in order to uh, 
you know, to, to ride down and find Aragorn down in Rohan. Um, but the idea that you get to gather them together and travel with them all the way down from, uh, you know, from Bree on south through, you know, uh, Enidwyth and Dunland and all the way down through the Gap of Rohan. Um, it's, I, I, I think it's just such a brilliant concept uh, to do that. Um, but I just got to the point um, in Griffith's quest last Friday where he goes to the ranger that's just up north. We'll see the ranger, Halros, uh, today, uh, up there in his little glade. Um, and he's the ranger who's been guard, you know, what, sort of the representative of the rangers guarding the Shire um, and protecting it from things that the hobbits themselves don't even really understand that they're being protected from. Um, and... So, yeah, I, I love the way that they sort of pick up on that. So, again, you can see the peace of the Shire itself has not yet been compromised, right? We don't yet have, um, uh, we don't yet have the evil things, you know, having penetrated into the heart of the Shire, and we don't have the, you know, the sort of the culture of the Shire yet overthrown. Um, but we can see sort of the, the, the glimpses of it, right? You know, that, uh, uh, that, that this is something that's going to happen and to which they're going to become vulnerable when, uh, uh, when the, the Rangers go away. So anyway, I think all of that is, uh, is really fun and really well done. But, but again, to me, even more sort of interesting is just thinking about, um, thinking about this in, um, in terms of, understanding Shire culture. I love, I love the way that Lotro has depicted hobbits. I think Lotro gets hobbits exactly right. Um, way too often they are depicted as I think they were in general in the Peter Jackson films as just, I don't know, like fat and self-indulgent basically. Um, uh, and not that there isn't more to hobbits, and certainly not more to the hobbit protagonists, but hobbit culture in general, like the way that they do the concerning hobbits thing at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, um, making them look all like dumb yokels and stuff, right? It's a like, oh, stable master. Always got to introduce yourself to stable masters. You never know when you might uh, wish you had an introduction, right? Anyway, sorry. Okay, we'll carry on to scary here. And then we'll take off from there. Um, so uh, anyhow, yeah. So I, I, I. But as I said, I think that Lotro gets gets hobbits really, really well. We were looking at Linda and Milo Boffin uh, last week down in in uh, Bunchford, uh, and again, I think that their combination of sort of marveling at these strange events with um, the you know the courage that they show. Uh, and, you know, the intrepidity even of, you know, Linda sending us off to, um, to, uh, um, to, to, to go talk to the elves and stuff, uh, it shows that they're made of sterner stuff, right? They don't just crumble when, you know, they don't just panic, uh, when their town is invaded by wolves. Um, they take it upon themselves even to a sort of self-sacrificial extent, uh, uh, potentially to, uh, try to handle the problem and, and protect everybody else. So I want to start today with uh, Fosco Boffin here, but see, notice, um, first of all, one thing you notice here in Scary, um, the main thing in Scary, of course, is the quarry, which is over here. Um, 
We can see the quarry here, and that's mentioned in the text. We know that there was a quarry here in Scary, not a quarry overrun by giant spiders as this one is, um, but uh, a quarry nevertheless. So that, of course, is the central thing. And you'll notice there are two sources of stone here in Scary. One is, of course, the quarry, and you can see the evidence of that all over the place, not only just in the cut and uncut stone lying around, um, but in the houses. Look at all the houses here, right? Notice how all the the houses in Scary are stone houses. Um, they don't have any... There's some that are like wood or even look like they might be clay or, or, or earthen sides and, and with turf roofs. We still get some of the turf roofs, um, but most of them have slate roofs um, and all of them have stone walls and this dark gray stone, which matches the stone uh, sitting around that they obviously got from this quarry, which is cool. But of course, the other place where you could theoretically get stone here is uh, this uh, brownstone from these Arnorian ruins right up here, which I'd never really noticed before. And I was trying to figure out earlier, I came up here a little while before, I was trying to figure out what it, what used to be here. So there's this little colonnade, right? So, like, imagine you're the Dunedain, right? You're the king of Arnor at Enuminous, and you're like, okay, I'm building something, so we're, remember, we're in the Shire, so we're here. This is the Brandywine River, which is a major river, right? Uh, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's going to come right up, so if we go, if we just peek up to Evendim, right? It's the Brandywine River, which comes out of, or goes into Lake Even. no, it comes out of Lake Evendim. So you've got Lake Evendim, where the city of Enuminous is, right? You've got the several streams which come down from the mountains and feed Lake Evendim, and then the Brandywine River, uh, spills out of Lake Evendim and flows down to the sea. So the Brandywine River, of course, is really important from a Hobbit standpoint. But it was a major, uh, it was a major travel artery, obviously, uh, for the Numenorians, for the Arnorians, when uh, their capital was on the lake in Enuminous, right? Uh, they must have done much shipping. So we saw the watchtowers, right? This, like the stock tower that we were looking at before, and the other one we could see across the way. So again, we're here, but we're here, we're on the other side of these hills. This is obviously not uh, not river-related. Uh, so what exactly was it? Because there's more over here, right? If you look at extends back, we've got some boulders and things over there, which seem random. But then there's more columns, and then another, there's like a, you know, a a wall there, and some fallen columns here, and some we can see some more down in the distance. Which direction are we looking at? Down into the middle of the bridge of the bridge fields, right? I don't know what was here. Uh, aqueduct? I don't know. Uh, but um, but of course, you know, you think of how used the Shire hobbits here must be to having these kinds of ruins up above them, and they're not mentioned. Um, often in the Fellowship of the Ring, but I think actually we've come across a reference to ruins like this, or to something, to, to, to the memory of ancient days. Um, uh, a sudden tree or a standing stone that none have met save we alone. Remember in the walking song? Um, what kind of standing stones are they likely to see? Well, we know that this place was once an Arnorian province, right? Even before the uh, the hobbits came here. So uh, uh, it seems likely that if you meet a standing stone in the forest when you're on your walk, right, singing your walking song, it might well be an Arnorian, uh, an Arnorian uh, fortress. Anyway, sorry, okay. Um, 
but um, this has been Examination of Ruins uh, uh, with Narion, and that's not what we came here for. We came here to talk to Fosco Boffin, whom I went up and kind of teased, but then didn't talk to. Okay, Fosco. Please, stay a moment. Yeah, okay, no problem. Uh, my Aunt Prunella... As, a reputable, as, as reputable a lady as you could hope to meet, but I'm worried that she might have done something a little reckless and could now be in terrible trouble. So uh, there's this uh, girl in town, in Scary, who claims to have seen a goblin up in the green fields. Um, and uh, she's, like, you know, telling people about this and causing a bit of a scandal. She'd been listening to that tunnely lass, and before you could say goblins in the Shire, she'd gone off to see the creatures for herself. I just don't know what I'd do if my dear old aunt actually finds goblins. Could you go look for her? Rumor has it there are no there are goblins in the northwest greenfields. Aunt Prunella carried a had a pretty umbrella that she carried everywhere, even on sunny days. So if you see a goblin with an umbrella, well okay. We'll look for a goblin with an umbrella. All right. Um, so, uh, first of all, you have to love the image of his old aunt, uh, you know, his aged aunt with her umbrella going off to investigate goblins in the Shire. Now, this might seem, um, uh, this might seem strange, right? Um, perhaps it seems unlikely to you that an old, respectable hobbit matron would take up her umbrella and sally forth to investigate stories of goblins and not, like, run in terror or hide or disbelieve it or whatever. Um, but it seems to me very fitting. Um, we know that hobbits do act like that. Think about what we've just been looking at and discussing. Think about the think about the cheek that Gaffer Gamgee shows to the Black Riders, right? Um, this kind of intrepidity is something that we do see in hobbits. I mean, just ask this guy over here, this hobbit who's been continually dancing on that bench by himself for no reason uh, for as long as we've been standing here, right? If that's not intrepidity, uh, what would be? Um, by the way, so let's, uh, let's, uh, let's head off up this way, up to the green fields. We'll pass by Halros the ranger, busily defending the Shire. Right here he is in this grove of trees right over here. Hey, man, there he is. Harold's the ranger. Good to see you, man. You know, all the rangers are always dressed like that. But speaking of rangers, do you know why Fosco Boffin's name is significant? That's an important name. Um, not an important character, exactly. I mean, he is. He gets mentioned. Um, oh, well, Falco gets mentioned. But um, Fosco Boffin is important. Because that's a name that Tolkien uses... To, and by the way, I know I'm not going straight to the goblins where Prunella's umbrella is. Uh, I'm coming up here on purpose. I want to talk to the sheep dude. I want to do this other quest, too. We're going to do two goblin quests here today. Up here in the Scragdells. I want to talk to... Uh, uh, no. No, not to you. I want to talk to you. Yeah, Mungo Burrows. Um, anyway, so... okay. Uh, so, uh, what was I talking about? Oh, Fosco. Uh, Fosco, oh, hang on, I'll, I'll finish talking about Fosco after we, uh, talk to Mungo Burrows. Okay. Please stay a moment. You've come along at just the right time, neighbor. 
Okay, first of all, the fa- his acceptance of us, right? Not like, hey, who are you, right? Or I've never seen you around here before. Or why are you with an enormous group of people all riding on strangely comparisoned horses? No, he's like, hi, neighbor. You've come along at just the right time. The goblins in that camp over there have stolen my prized you. And if you don't do something, they'll roast her over a spit. I have other sheep, but she's the pick of the lot and wins prizes at the Brocken Boring's Wool Festival year after year. You've got to rescue her. You have to go inside the goblin camp over there and escort her out. She won't be able to weave on her own. She's just a sheep. She'll need you to guard her on her way out, so stay sharp. You might want to bring some friends along. Don't worry, we got that covered. I don't think these goblins care too much about what they eat. Okay. So we've got to go rescue his sheep. So, uh, again, his warm and... So let's rescue the sheep first. His warm and friendly nature is one really charming thing about him, right? Uh, the fact that he is so concerned about his sheep that needs rescuing, not because he's worried about his flocks, not because he's concerned that his property was stolen, not because, you know, he is hungry and needs her for food, but because she always takes the prizes in the wool festival. And, uh, you know, he needs her for... Uh, uh, to, 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 it, this is a show sheep, right? Uh, that he That he needs... I think it's awesome. Okay. All right, sheep. We're going to escort the sheep. Okay, so we have to follow the sheep in its slow and meandering way as the sheep is going to seek out every goblin in the camp and run right to it. So, you know, we're sort of trusting everybody to uh, keep off the goblins that are inevitably going to uh, going to be attacking. Now, if you see the goblins... Um... The goblins are all called Graham's Foot, something or other. Like there's the, you know, the, this one is the, a Graham's Foot hurler. Of course, that means they are goblins from the from the who 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 lived on the foot of Mount Graham. Oh, sorry, I have not. I have failed to follow the sheep. It's a good thing I have so many friends along with me to help protect the sheep. Or the sheep would have been toast by now. As I'm wandering around talking about other things, but yeah. So they're all from Mount Graham. This is, of course, a reference uh, to the only other battle which has ever been in the Shire, and it was up here on the Greenfields. Right, the Greenfields are the place where Banderbrus took, Bolroer took, um, fought and won the only battle that has ever taken place within the Shire in the memory of hobbits. The Battle of Greenfields, it was called, uh, where he fought the goblins from Mount Graham, and that's where he. Um, uh, that's where he decapitates uh, uh, Golfimble, their king, and uh, wins the battle and invents the game of golf at the same time. Um, so, like it is, so it is that battle. This is the very place where that battle happened, and now the goblins have returned. And of course, it's like the descendants of those um, uh, of those goblins that have come back and uh, uh, and are, like, seeking revenge for their King Golfimble slain lo these many years ago. Hey, somebody leveled up. Awesome. What do you need? Okay, I'll dedicate her next win at the Brocken Boring's Wool Festival to you, my reliable friend. Okay. Very good. Uh, get some fried mushrooms and mushroom pie. Awesome. Um, so, I... I as I say, I, I feel like they get hobbits completely right. So here's Mungo Burroughs, right? Here's Mungo Burroughs, and he is uh, concerned about his sheep, not just because he's concerned for their welfare, but because he's thinking about the he's thinking about competing at the wool festival, 
right? Um, you know, the kind of uh, innocent competition, but, you know, there's nothing avaricious or possessive exactly, but it's also not innocent. It's not like, I just love sheep, and, I, you know, I couldn't bear to think of anything horrible happening. I mean, yeah, he cares about his sheep, but he primarily cares about his sheep because she, like, wins at the festival, and he's proud of that, right? So, um, anyway, the, again, this this combination of winsome friendliness with... Um, uh, you know, with uh, um, sort of, you know, the sort of pragmatic mind, right? I mean, this seem this is uh, and uh, uh, and you know, real concern for these sort of small things. Again, this seems to me very, very, very hobbity. Now we're going to look for Punella's umbrella. Now let's notice a couple things here as we go. Uh, this is a goblin camp up here. So these goblins have come down from Mount Graham and they're they're invading again, right? That's what uh, Haros the Ranger is worried about down there. Uh, and in the epic quest line, uh, in book one, you uh, you help him with that. So, notice these totem pillars, right, that they've erected, which seem to be painted with blood. This is standard goblin architecture. But notice how it's made out of a tree, and you can see the stump still in the ground, right? So these were two trees that they've mutilated, and they've turned these two living trees into blood-spattered goblin wolf totems, right? Um, with these ropes hanging around, and you kind of, like, shudder to think what these ropes are meant for. Like, why are there ropes? Probably not to hang street signs. Probably to, like, crucify people and stuff on this, right? I mean, you got to think that's likely what that's for. So you see the hobbit, the, the, the goblins here, making this horrific use of these shire trees, right? So we can see, and notice this, uh, this tree, which seems to have been pulled down very recently, right? It's still got all of its leaves, but it's been ripped up by the roots here for no apparent le- reason. It's just been left to lie. So we can again see not only this sort of sacrilege of the, um, of the goblins, but the, um, uh, the, uh, just the, sort of the horrible, wasteful, disrespectful attitude of them. Um, <laughs> goblin cries. All right, let's keep going. Here's another one we can see. Oh, that's not what I'm looking for. Let's look up over here to the right. We'll see something worth seeing on our way through here. Uh-huh. Little goblin shrine. So they've made this little camp, which is just a bunch of tents and some trees they have desecrated, but they have built this little shrine. Um, and what is this shrine to? Is this a shrine to Sauron? No. In fact, there's really no evidence of Sauron at all in this shrine. And we can see, you can see this kind of shrine in many places. There are a bunch of them in Goblin Town. Uh, you can find them in many places where there are goblins or orcs, um, such as in the North Downs. Um, this is just a goblin statue. You can tell on account of the ears. The ears, the pointy ears, uh, the, the, the really exaggerated pointed ears are the chief characteristic of goblin iconography for goblins, right? So here's their like fangy faces with like blood dripping from their mouths and their grotesquely pointed ears sticking out. You can see the 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 tree which has been 
hollowed out, right, so that the flames can sort of rise up and the smoke come out the top, but it's got the pointy ears too, right? So this is a goblin shrine to... So they're worshipping goblins? I think this is the... This is the Grey Goblin, right? Like this is this is this is a Goblin shrine, and it seems um, implied that the Great Goblin is something is not just like the dude who happens to be king of the Goblin, but is actually a, a sort of a figure of reverence uh, among the Goblins, um, and so that would seem to be a shrine to the Great Goblin. So okay, so. Um, Interesting that we do see that sort of glimpse of the, you know, sort of the religious life of the goblins. If it is religious, I don't know if that's exactly the right word necessarily to use, but um, but anyway, let's carry on. We'll never find Prunella's umbrella. we got to see if uh, poor old Prunella is uh, is still alive, or if she took on, you know, if she took all these goblins. Maybe she fought her way through and these goblins have just regened already, I don't know. I mean, she was armed, right? She came with an umbrella. And of course you know what that is meant to evoke, right? Um, uh, Lobelia Sackville Baggins and her umbrella up and going for the leader, right, of the, uh, of the ruffians when she, uh, uh, you know, at the beginning of the scouring of the Shire. So this is the center of their camp. And again, we see it's, again, it's very rough, right? Just very simple little tents. Um... I think this is the, yes, it's the Graham's Foot Battler, one of the big bosses here. Okay. And Prunel's umbrella somewhere out here. Yeah, here it is over here. Okay. Alright, here's the, oh, not close enough for the umbrella. All right, I'm going to pick up the umbrella. There we go. Okay. So we found her umbrella and not her. And is that a sheep? It is. Oh, it's a pet sheep. Somebody's pet sheep. I'm like, is there a random sheep wandering up here? Don't tell me we have to escort him back, too. Okay. All right. So we found the umbrella, and we have to return to Fosco with what seems like dark tidings, right? We found his aunt but no evidence of Prunella. But we can at least tell him good news, and that is that we didn't see his Aunt Prunella roasting over the fire or, like, find her bones or see her gruesomely, uh, you know, crucified on one of those horrible goblin totems, you know, spattered with other people's blood or anything like that, right? So, you know, it's kind of a good news, bad news sort of situation. So, uh... Oh, I'm in combat. I can't mount. There again. Quick. Okay, so let's, I'm going to mount up, uh, and we're going to head back to Fosco Boffin, and then I'll let everybody go to bed. But in the meantime, as we ride back, I want to talk about um, Fosco Boffin. I didn't finish telling the Fosco Boffin story. <clears throat> why his name is interesting. Why his name is significant. Um... I know I've mentioned before, and certainly <clears throat> those of you who have been studying the Return of the Shadow with me may remember Fosco Boffin and Fosco Boffin's name. Um, and the reason for this is that uh, Fosco Boffin was originally... The, whoops, I'm running to a dead end here. And I, I, I went uh, yin. I, I went hither when I was supposed to go yon. Um, so yeah, anyway, so um, uh, in the early drafts of The Fellowship of the Ring, 
the role played, the role later to be played by Aragorn, that is, the dude who meets them in the Inn at Bree and guides them across country to Weathertop and eventually on to Rivendell, uh, and uh, comes in with torches when the Nazgul attack and helps to drive them away and uh, all that kind of thing. Um, that role, of course, is played by not by a man but a hobbit in the first draft, in the first several drafts of the story. And that hobbit's name is not Strider but Trotter, T R O T T E R, and he is um, uh, he is best known, of course, for his. Uh, wooden shoes. He is famous for wearing wooden shoes that go clippity-clop as he comes towards you down the road. Uh, Just in last week's class, we came to this rather shocking moment when it was revealed that um, Trotter wears wooden shoes, or possibly entire prosthetic wooden feet, because he was captured uh, by Sauron and brought to Barad-dûr and tortured um, by Sauron and the Ringwraiths in Barad-dûr, and that's why he wears wooden shoes, because his feet were destroyed in the torture that he experienced at Dal Guldur. Um, anyway, let's talk to Fosco quick, and then I'll finish the story. Oh, wait, we already got it. So he's like, oh, my poor aunt, and then his neighbor comes out the door and says, don't be silly, she's been visiting me all day. Right, so he thinks that Prunella went and was, you know, vanquished. Yeah. And, okay, wait, I see. Yeah, we got we have to take turns talking to him here, I see. Okay. Um, are we going to get the neighbor walking by like 80 times? It's fine. Oh, we each have to turn in the umbrella to, to him? How tiresome. Okay. Well, I'm not going to worry about it then. Um, so, yes, to think she'd meet her ends at the hands of gobbles, the neighbor comes out and says, oh, no, actually, she's been with me all day, and then he's all embarrassed. Um, so it turns out, of course, to be a false alarm. Prunella's fine. It was just her umbrella was stolen by the goblins. So fortunately, we end up merely restoring uh, Prunella's umbrella to her out of the, uh, the vile clutches of the goblins so that the, uh, the, the noble and erstwhile Prunella Boffin no longer has her umbrella uh, tarnished by the, uh, uh, by the unclean hands of the goblins of Mount Graham anymore. Um, anyway... Um, oh, that was a wild bear lunging in to attack us and following us from the fields. That's funny. Um, so, finally getting back to Fosco Boffin. Um, one of the questions that Tolkien was asking from the very first draft was, who is Trotter? Right? Like, he was going to give Trotter a real identity, like it was they were going to meet him and be introduced to him as Trotter, but he was going to turn out to be somebody else. Right? Um, and he went through a bunch of, like, possibilities of who Trotter was going to be. Well, the one that he kind of lands at, eventually, which is my favorite one, um, is he was going to be Fosco Boffin. That was going to be his name. And um, uh, and who he was was the, a first cousin of Bilbo on the Took side. One of the, His name is Boffin, not Took, because he's one of the sons of one of the other of the three remarkable daughters of the old Took. Remember, uh, Belladonna Took was Bilbo's mother. Belladonna marries Drogo Baggins. Well, her sister, um, uh, Mirabella, I think? Or Donna Mira. I forget which one. Anyway, um, marries um, uh, uh, marries I forget his first name. One of the Boffins, and 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 Fosco is their uh, is their is their son. So he's he's Bilbo's first cousin, um, and he's one of those 
tooks that goes off into the blue on mad adventures under Gandalf's influence. And so they meet him later on. So it turns out that this rugged, wild, uh, adventurous, exploring hobbit um, whom they meet in Bree and who guides them across the, uh, the, the land to Weathertop and helps to preserve them on the, the trip to Rivendell from there, uh, turns out to be not only Frodo's relative, but turns out to be the fulfillment of one of those references in the beginning of The Hobbit, one of those tooks uh, that went off on adventures with, uh, with cousin Bilbo, or at the instigation of Gandalf, rather, not with Bilbo, uh, though they met afterwards. Um, uh, and anyway, Fosco Boffin is the name, so I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of fun to see the name preserved here. Just a moment. Uh, that's right, okay, so here's I, I, finishing the quest. We'll get the neighbor walking through for like the eighth time. Anyway, okay, so um, the neighbor dismisses Fosco as silly, right? Don't be silly. Prunella's been visiting me. She hasn't been eaten by goblins. Um, but I just love the fact that he suspected that that's just what his aunt did, right? Um, he, he is uh, convinced that clearly... What do you need? What his aunt would have done. I'll take the roast pork. Thank you. You can keep your pants. Thank you. Um, um, that he's, he's totally convinced that his aunt marched out there and went for the goblins to drive, what, like to drive them out of the green fields herself because, you know, uh, we will not have any goblins on the green fields, thank you, on the green fields of all places, right? And that's that kind of attitude, it's, it seems to me, that's very Hobbit-like. It's not the kind of thing that most people think of when they think of Hobbit-like attitudes. Um, but I think it's very typical of them. And, uh, uh, and it's something, therefore, that I... Again, it's another example of where I think they get Hobbits really right in this game. All right, well, I should say goodnight now, and thanks every, very much for everybody for coming. I've kept you uh, uh, a long time, even considering that I started late. So uh, thanks, everybody, for joining me again this week. Don't forget, I'll be away. I'll be on the road for the next two weeks. Um, so we will have no class next week or the week after. We'll be back on May the 9th, uh, and we'll do the drinking song, we'll do the Nazgul cry, and we'll head off towards Farmer Maggot's house. So... Thanks, everybody, very much for uh, joining me tonight, and I will see you guys in three weeks. Bye now.